Well, I would urge you to turn in your copy of the scriptures to the letter of 1 Timothy. It's near the end of the New Testament. This is the first of three pastoral epistles in the New Testament canon, which get that name because they're written, guess what, to pastors to help them in their ministry. The other two of those three books are, of course, Second Timothy and a book you should all be well familiar with by now, Titus, both of which, of course, follow First Timothy. Follow along as I read the first 11 chapters of, I'm sorry, first 11 chapters. <laughs> first Timothy doesn't have that many chapters. First 11 verses of chapter one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God, our savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Let us pray. Our Father, we do pray that you would use your word in this hour to teach us, to convict us, and to guide us that we may be more like Christ so that we would glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. So Timothy joined the apostle Paul in the early stages of Paul's second missionary journey presumably having become a believer as a result of Paul's first missionary journey around seven years earlier. Here in verse 2, Paul refers to Timothy as his true child in the faith. 
he accompanied Paul into Macedonia and Greece, and Paul sent him as his emissary to places like Corinth and Thessalonica. Timothy was Paul's close companion as he wrote, as Paul wrote, Romans, 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and Philemon. According to Hebrews 13.23, Timothy seems to have been released from prison at some point, presumably having shared in the persecution experienced by Paul. But perhaps Timothy's most famous role is referred to here in verse 3 as pastor in the church at Ephesus, where Paul had labored for three full years. This letter was apparently written by Paul at around 62 to 64 AD after the close of the book of Acts. According to verse 3, Paul had left Timothy in Ephesus with the urgent task of teaching sound doctrine, with particular emphasis on exposing and correcting false teachers within that church. This letter begins by reminding Timothy of that ongoing responsibility. Indeed, that theme is very reminiscent of Paul's earlier exhortation to the elders at Ephesus at the close of his third missionary journey as recorded in Acts 20, verses 28 through 32, where we read, and Paul said, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Now, Timothy was not one of those elders to whom Paul spoke those words on that occasion, but he was there, since verse 4 of that chapter indicates that Timothy was one of Paul's companions on that trip. We should expect that as Timothy read this letter from the Apostle Paul, he would have remembered not only Paul's words to him as he left him in Ephesus, but also the words he spoke to those elders years before. It's a common theme. As we study Paul's instruction to Timothy here, we see that first he specifies errors to correct, then he provides an example to follow, and then finally he provides an example to avoid, revealing the underlying cause of all false teaching. 
Well, let's look at the errors to correct. In verses 3 and 4, Paul urges Timothy to correct two aspects of an underlying problem in the church at Ephesus. He says, instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. The word instruct here means to transmit a command, in this case from Paul. So Paul is not saying that Timothy should make a recommendation. Rather, he should speak with Paul's authority to correct error. The term certain men is actually neutral. It's not necessarily male. Instruct certain ones is probably a more accurate translation. However, it's almost certain that they must have been men. Well, then Paul lists two errors that need to be corrected. First is the teaching of strange doctrines. That's a compound verb that combines the noun teacher with the adjective different. And it means to teach false doctrine. Paul uses it one other time in Scripture, and that's in chapter 6, verse 3 of the same book, where he writes, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. The second error that Paul exposes is in verse 4 of our text, and that is paying attention to myths and endless genealogies. The word myths, of course, means fables, tales, uh, stories that depart from historical fact in which significant details have been invented. And it's used just four other times in the New Testament. And three of those four are in Paul's pastoral epistles, warning against useless teaching. Those references are 1 Timothy 4.7, Titus 1.14, and 2 Timothy 4, where in verses 3 through 4 we read, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. The second term, endless genealogies, refers to unending recountings of a family's origins or ancestors and is used just one other time Again, in the pastoral epistle of Titus, chapter 3, verse 9, where Paul writes, But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. So, the two key errors, and I'll list them in reverse order, are one, being influenced by unbiblical concepts, 
And secondly, deriving and teaching doctrines that are based on such unbiblical concepts. But notice the results of those errors in verse 4. He says they give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. Do you see the endless cycle Paul's referring to here? When people adopt unbiblical theories, that causes them to teach false doctrines as truth, and that in turn produces mere speculations and assumptions, which lead them further down this downward cycle of speculation, error, and untruth. It's like seeking, sinking deeper and deeper into quicksand. The word translated speculation has to do with questioning, as in a debate or controversy. And in this case, it seems to have um, more to do with questioning sound doctrine, raising uh, concerns about it and arguing against it. Usually that happens when people try to apply their own or some other human reason to a text of Scripture. And that's why Paul contrasts it with furthering the administration or stewardship of God, which is by faith. Faith in what God has said rather than in the wisdom and reasoning of man. So having alerted Timothy to these errors to correct, Paul gives him, secondly, an example to follow. In verse 5, Paul provides the qualities of his own instruction as an example of how to avoid those errors. He says, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The New American Standard Bible translates that as the goal, but it's really somewhat stronger than that, Paul is describing the natural result or end of sound teaching. And what is that result? Love. God's agape love. A commitment to love others without regard to how lovable they are. It's a love that doesn't depend on how we feel. But rather it comes from our inner nature. Paul describes three ways that inner nature motivates us. A pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Those are not really separate things. Paul is speaking here of our immaterial being, the, our heart, the, the real us on the inside. That's the seat of our intellect, emotions, and will. But it's also where God has given to each person a conscience, giving us an understanding of what is morally right and morally wrong and nudging us toward the right and away from the wrong. Notice how revolutionary Paul's point is here. Instruction in sound doctrine from Scripture transforms the inner person 
prompting us to love God and love others unconditionally and sacrificially from the heart. To do the right thing for the right reasons, thus fulfilling the law. False teaching can't do that. That's what Paul is urging Timothy to pursue and to correct those who teach anything else. He picks up that theme again in verses 6 through 11, explaining the causes of false teaching through a specific example now to avoid. He writes, For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. The example that Paul provides concerns those who wanted to be teachers of the Old Testament law, but who were really ignorant of its purpose and role. Perhaps these included Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom he said in verse 20 had blasphemed and uh, rejected the faith. Such people strayed from any attempt to reach the hearts of people and instead made two fatal mistakes to which Paul draws Timothy's attention. The first mistake was fruitless discussion. This word speaks of talk that is vain or empty, talk that doesn't carry any weight and doesn't accomplish anything of value. This is the only place in the New Testament where this word is used, but the corresponding word that describes to those who participate in fruitless discussion is used in Titus 1, 10 through 11, which says, for there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach, why? For the sake of sordid gain. The second fatal mistake was making ignorant but confident assertions. He says they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. The same word is used in Titus 3.8 which says, this is a trustworthy statement and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed in God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. So speaking confidently is not necessarily a bad thing. Paul was instructing Titus to be confident in his speech in the right occasion. So when is it wrong to speak confidently. Well, Paul tells us they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. So when we don't understand something, it's rather foolish to make confident assertions about it, isn't it? The problem is that most people who make this mistake don't realize how much their understanding is an error. And as we saw in verse 4, this happens because they proceed on the basis of mere speculation. 
It's not just that they speculated or guessed what the truth is, but they proceeded as if their speculation or assumption were true. So they made confident assertions about it, even though they had no reason to be confident that their assumptions were correct. Notice then Paul's example of this. Those who wanted to be teachers of the law, but who didn't understand its purpose and who therefore didn't interpret or use the law correctly. He picks up in verse 8 and says, but we know that the law is good. If one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So, what assumption were these false teachers making, treating it as fact, even though it was completely wrong? Well, Paul tells us in verse 9, the assumption that the law is for righteous people. In particularly, separating righteous Jews from unrighteous Gentiles. But what is the truth? The fact, which Paul considers obvious, that any law is made for those who are lawless and rebellious, not for those who don't need it, right? Only when a person's departure from the standard of the law is exposed can he see that his need, that he has a need for change. That was true not only of the Old Testament law, but as Paul points, it, points out, really of any sound teaching based on the gospel of God. So these false teachers missed the whole point of the Old Testament law. It was not so that people would obey it and become righteous because they've obeyed the law, but rather so that they would come to understand that they can't obey it, at least completely, and thus causing them to see their need for a Savior who would satisfy, satisfy God's wrath against their own sin. That is, they needed to see their need for God's grace. He lists in verses 9 through 10 examples of those who are lawless and rebellious, uh, just in case there is any doubt. But this list, of course, could be a lot longer, and it certainly would include every human being, including us. The specific sins he lists seem to be direct violations of the Ten Commandments. But notice that the false teachers whom Paul is exposing here were probably not evil people, at least on the outside. Like the Pharisees whom Jesus confronted, they may well have kept virtually every requirement of the law in their outward behavior, so it may have seemed natural to them to view the law as something that proves our righteousness. But like Jesus said in Matthew 5.20, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, 
you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, our righteousness needs to come from a changed heart, which then overflows into our actions. Indeed, Paul put it here in verse 5, from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Keeping the law, like the Pharisees, didn't necessarily produce that in the heart. So when these would-be teachers missed that fundamental purpose of the law, they were reading into the scriptures something that was never there. We call that eisegesis. That's the Greek term that means interpretation by inserting into the text meaning that is not actually there. At the most basic level, it means making an assumption about the meaning of the text, then treating that assumption as fact. It's what Paul describes in verse 4 as mere speculation. And in verse 7 as ignorant but confident assertions. The opposite of eisegesis is exegesis. That's interpretation that draws out the meaning of the text from the text itself. Since it is God's word that is inspired, not our assumptions. Exegesis pays careful attention to the words, uh, the grammar, the context, both the immediate context of the passage and the broader context of all of Scripture, including the historical context. We can't impose onto the text an assumption about the meaning of a particular verse if that assumption is not consistent with the author's flow of thought, his use of words, and indeed if it's not consistent with the rest of Scripture. Now, I know that you know that, but do you realize just how easy it is to violate that basic principle of biblical interpretation? A large number of our dear Reformed brothers in Christ, genuine believers, for example, assume that the church has replaced Israel and that baptism has replaced circumcision as a sign of the covenant. So it should therefore be administered to children. But even the leaders of the Reformation didn't perceive the extent to which they brought those assumptions into their interpretation of the Bible. Assumptions based largely on established traditions in the very church they were trying to reform. And they weren't alert about how much they had to force Scripture to say things it doesn't actually say. But they're not alone. A large number of our dear dispensational brothers and sisters in Christ assume that it would be unfair for God to choose who gets saved. So they assume that man can generate saving faith on his own. 
That may appeal to our logical minds, but it directly contradicts the very clear teaching of Scripture. Does that mean that we, maybe you consider yourself a dispensational Calvinist, I don't know, but does that mean that we have have avoided the temptation to read into the text of Scripture assumptions that are not true? I don't know, but we certainly need to be humble and alert because this tendency has been around ever since Satan twisted God's word in the Garden of Eden saying, has God really said? And of course, it's tripped up the men of God in the Reformation whom we greatly respect and who undoubtedly did a better job of rediscovering the truths of Scripture than we would have ever done had we been in their place. But it's so subtle and it's so easy. And if that doesn't cause us to be humble and alert, I want to show you just how pervasive eisegesis is by showing how it pops up in other contexts of life. Many of you may remember the somewhat notable debate on creation versus evolution between Ken Ham and Bill Nye, the science guy, some years ago. Um, Although I don't think I've met Bill Nye, I kind of like him. Uh, He was a year behind me at Cornell, and I like his knack for making science interesting and fun. But if I were to have debated him, I would have let people know up front that Bill, like most modern scientists today, often ignore the basic principles of the scientific method, causing them to arrive at faulty conclusions. As you may recall, the scientific method involves making a hypothesis about an observed phenomenon, and then testing that hypothesis in a controlled experiment modifying the hypothesis to account for the results of those experiments, and then continuing this cyclical process of hypothesis testing to improve our explanation of the phenomenon just as much as we can. So what does that require? Objectivity. A willingness to subject our hypotheses to rigorous tests, including the scrutiny of others and to change our hypotheses when the data require it. Unfortunately, we increasingly find people making scientific assertions that are based on untested assumptions. That is, they read into the data a meaning that is not there. They commit scientific eisegesis. And that leads many today, like Bill Nye, to assert that life originally arose accidentally from non-life, and that the living organism thus created has evolved over billions of years into the wide range of higher life forms we see today. Not only does that position ignore scientific observations to the contrary, but it refuses to see that it is based on untested assumptions. 
using that approach to science, I can prove to you that I'm 5,000 years old. Now, I know some of you have already come to that conclusion. <laughs> But you can scientifically measure my height to be 72 inches. And you can find evidence that I, like most people, was 22 inches long at birth, meaning that I've grown 50 inches since I was born. Now, you could scientifically measure my, grade of, my rate of growth, or at least what it used to be before I stopped growing.、Um, and let's say you measured it to be one one hundredth of an inch per year. Well, that's an inch of growth every hundred years, so it must have taken 5,000 years to grow 50 inches, right? <laughs> There you have it. Scientific proof that I'm 5,000 years old. But did you notice the assumption I made? And I treated it as fact? I assumed that the rate at which I'm growing now has always been my rate of growth. Moreover, I didn't test that assumption against other data, such as the observation that humans grow much faster when they're younger, or the obvious observation that. I had grown 22 inches in nine months in the womb. That's exactly the kind of assumption one needs to treat as fact in order to read into scientific data interpretations that are not really supported by the data. That's scientific eisegesis. By the way, the assumption that the processes we observe today have always been and always will be in effect. It's called uniformitarianism. And the Apostle Peter refuted that in 2 Peter chapter 3. Beginning in verse 3, he writes Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? That is, the return of Christ. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, All continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, Peter says, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, an intervention here, by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. In other words, the flood of Noah, which Was another supernatural intervention, superseding the natural processes that were in place at the time. But Peter continues, by his word, that is another example of an inter intervention by God, by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Well, do you see how we can draw? False conclusions when we treat our untested assumptions as fact? Well, in a similar way, people have discarded true science in favor of untested assumptions when they make confident assertions about the origins of such politically correct things as global warming and homosexual behavior. Well, another common context in which people practice eisegesis. Has to do with legal interpretation. 
We see this often when the Supreme Court, for example, reads into the Constitution meanings that simply are not there. This has led, for example, to official rulings that slaves and unborn babies are not persons. And therefore, they don't have any rights protected by the Constitution, even the most basic right to life. I'm sure that the framers of the Constitution would have been shocked to see how the Supreme Court would read into that Constitution meanings they're not that are not there, a practice we might call legal eisegesis. And it's important to see that the meaning one reads into the Constitution depends entirely on the philosophy of the person interpreting it, not the original intent of the framers. So do you see the parallel to biblical interpretation? Now, Perhaps you're pointing your fingers at those who shamefully commit scientific or legal eisegesis, but don't be so self-righteous. Even if you've never advocated or practiced bad science or bad legal interpretation, I know we're all guilty of my third example, relational eisegesis. Reading into someone else's words or actions Motives that aren't necessarily there. You've done that, right? Someone says something to you or doesn't do or does do or doesn't do something according to your expectations and you immediately fault him in your heart. Sometimes we call it jumping to conclusions. We pronounce him guilty without bothering to check the facts without testing our assumptions. We act as if our assumption about his motive is true, when in fact it's just an assumption. And it's for this very reason that Jesus laid out a very clear process for church discipline in Matthew 18, where he said, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. And if he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, Take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. When we think someone in the church has sinned, we need to go to him directly and privately. Why? First, to check the facts. Perhaps we misinterpreted his words or his actions. Perhaps there's more to this than we had assumed Rather than reading into his words or actions, we need to let him speak for himself. Having done that, if we think it really was sin and he doesn't repent, then the second step is to take it to one or two others uh, with us to visit him again. What's their role? To be honest brokers who will objectively determine the facts as Jesus explained. It's not sufficient for others to take your word for it. They need to check the facts too. Only when multiple objective people agree on the facts can the person's heart be understood. And only then can he be held accountable publicly. But all of us need to avoid...
Well, no, all of us tend to avoid, tend to avoid that process in our relationships with others. We're quick, quick to judge their motives, even when we don't have all or perhaps any of the actual facts. We make confident assertions and even accusations. And so how many arguments and rifts between people would be avoided if we practiced relational exegesis instead of relational eisegesis? Probably most of them would go away. So what I mean to demonstrate through the examples of scientific, legal, and relational eisegesis is that the tendency to treat our assumptions as fact is pretty natural for human beings. And we're not exempt as Christians. Therefore, we should take Paul's charge to Timothy as a warning to ourselves not to impose our theories and assumptions on Scripture, but rather to let Scripture speak for itself. In the same way that we misinterpret scientific data, original intent, or people's words and actions, when we treat our assumptions as fact without subjecting them to careful testing, we also misinterpret Scripture when we don't objectively test whether our assumptions hold water biblically. And given how common it is for people, even us, to practice eisegesis in other domains, we should be especially alert not to do this in our interpretation of God's word. I dare say that most heresies have probably been rooted in eisegesis that was not intentional, but it was inevitable once human logic or assumptions were taken as supreme, forcing scripture to conform to man's wisdom rather than scripture holding man accountable to God's wisdom. And let us not be so proud or foolish to think that we're immune from that error ourselves. Let's always be on guard to avoid developing or teaching what Paul refers to here as strange doctrines, myths, mere speculation, and confident assertions without paying attention to what Scripture really says. How can we avoid those errors? Let me offer four suggestions in closing. First, ask God to expose any pride in your heart that would incline you to treat your interpretive assumptions as facts. Ask him to expose any specific assumptions that you've made that you haven't objectively tested against what Scripture actually says. Secondly, do the work necessary to understand the breadth of biblical teaching as well as the grammatical and historical context of the passage in question so that you fully test any interpretive assumptions that you've made. Third, it might help to list the weaknesses of your initial interpretation from a biblical perspective and adjust your assumptions accordingly. And then fourth, it's usually wise to consult with others who have followed a similar process to see if they took into account 
clear biblical information that you overlooked. Such commentaries won't be inspired. Indeed, the more you have studied the passage, the more you may be able to identify untested and incorrect, incorrect assumptions even in their work, but they can be a helpful way to test your interpretation. May God enable us to rightly divide the word of truth, allowing him to use his word to change us into conformity with Christ. Let us pray. Our Father, we are so blessed that you have given us your word, but if we're honest, we know that we often approach it with a proud heart. It's not that our assumptions, it's, it's wrong to make assumptions, but Lord, keep us humble enough to test those assumptions against your word so that we would not undermine your word, even unintentionally. Give us your strength and your wisdom to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.